Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. January 5th, this state, we the people of this state, we will decide, we will chart a course forward for this country. The stakes really could not be higher for these two runoffs. It all comes down to Georgia. We journalists are very, very fond of saying the stakes could not be higher. It's also something that I've heard from every single Republican and Democrat (laughs) that I've talked to for the past uh, however many weeks. But it genuinely seems to be true in Georgia right now. You are going to change the future of this country by voting for Republicans in this race. I'm Scott Bland. This is Nerdcast. We just had a presidential election, and that's over. But for Georgia, things are very much not over. And the results of these runoff elections coming up in January are going to determine just what Joe Biden can do as president. To do these things, we need the United States Senate. And the people of Georgia are matching this intense political pressure with wild enthusiasm. We're about to send two brand new state senators to Washington. People are let up. People are very, very excited. Our own James Arkin saw this firsthand on a recent trip to Georgia. What does that sound like? You know, you can kind of, you count enthusiasm by how many cars show up and how many car horns you can hear in the background of, of the speeches. I mean, you leave these events with a headache because the, the car horns are blaring for an hour and a half. So, so there's no sense of, like, people being kind of over it? No, I really don't think there is. James, you cover the Senate, and that means right now you've got Georgia on your mind. Georgia. Currently, right now, as things sit, Republicans have a 50 to 48 advantage. In the Senate. Now, you might notice that doesn't add up to 100, and that's because we've got both of these Georgia races still outstanding. We've got the regular election for freshman Senator David Perdue versus John Ossoff. And the special election to fill the final two years of Senator Johnny Isaacson's term, the seat that's currently held by Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler. Uh, both those seats are in runoffs right now. And so that means that if Republicans win one or both, they will maintain their Senate majority that they won in 2014 and defended in 2016 and 2018. And if Democrats win both, then they will have control of the Senate. It'll be a a 50-50 Senate, and then Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, when she's sworn in, she'll be able to break the ties. So truly, the the difference between Democrats having united control of both chambers of Congress and the White House and Republicans having a backstop in the Senate comes down to these two races in Georgia. Meanwhile, this isn't just happening in just any state. This is happening in the state with the closest presidential results in the country in 2020. Biden won by less than three-tenths of a percentage point uh, when all the counting was said and done, which is wild. I mean, you know, there have been closer state races in presidential elections in the past, but I don't think we've ever had Senate runoffs coming up right behind them with control of the Senate on the line. Georgia has been one of these states for Democrats that's sort of been on the precipice for years now. Uh, I mean, Democrats have been talking about turning Georgia blue for election cycle after election cycle, and they've continually fallen short, but gotten kind of closer and closer over the years. And so Joe Biden's victory was the first time in three decades that they got over the hump and that they were able to successfully 
turn Georgia blue at, at the presidential level, at least. And so here we are. Democrats trying to see whether the trends that they saw in Georgia that built up to this moment in November 2020 were real. And can they actually turn this into a consistent battleground state that Democrats can win? Or was this some sort of one-off anti-Donald Trump vote? And is Joe Biden the only Democrat who could pull this off? Maybe the coalition that that he successfully rode to victory isn't there for every other Democrat. Uh, This is a state that's been trending toward battleground status for so long and It has fully arrived in battleground status. For Joe Biden specifically, as he's in the middle of his presidential transition, he's figuring out how to staff uh, his cabinet, uh, the rest of the executive branch, you know, all sorts of picks for for this and that. Once he is president, you know, he, he will get to nominate judges and all sorts of other stuff. I mean, there's really big questions about what exactly his administration will be able to do. And uh, that's that's actually probably the, the easy stuff that I just mentioned, the, the, you know, in terms of legislation, like that could be really difficult in a scenario where Mitch McConnell remains Senate Majority Leader, which I, th- I think I've, I love this stat, I think I've probably mentioned it a few times on the show, but I, it's been 32 years since a president came into office without full control of Congress. And 32 years ago, we're talking about a completely different political situation. So for Biden, this this could be a very important moment in his presidency. Yeah, so the difference for Joe Biden between a Republican Senate and a Democratic Senate will be visible right away. Even even a 50-50 Democratic Senate where every vote will be tight, uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will have to presumably break quite a few tiebreaker votes. He's spending a lot of time there. Yeah. <laughs> she will be spending a lot of time in familiar territory in the Senate. Uh, but uh, you'll notice it right away. I mean, the the speed with which his nominees will be able to get hearings, the way that those hearings are conducted the speed with which they will be able to be brought to the floor, even questions about some of the nominees. I mean, we've already seen sort of some opposition from Republicans to Neera Tandon, uh, the, the president-elect's uh, choice to run the Office of Management and Budget. I think that confirmation vote will be very different in a 50-50 Democratic Senate versus a 52-48 Republican Senate. And so you'll be able to see it right away, and then that will just be a theme for the first two years of Biden's presidency. I think it will be much more difficult to get anything through and sort of everything that he wants to do legislatively will be watered down, will be, you know, have to run through Republicans and have Republican support to even get on the floor, let alone to get passed. And, and so the, the stakes, <laughs> we keep saying it, but, but it really, <laughs> truly is a, a, a true cliche at this point for, for Biden's presidency and, and for the first two years of, of his term as president are enormous. Stakes very clear. So we saw Georgia swing blue by the narrowest of margins on the the presidential map this year after years of grassroots movement to to change the state and a a big suburban shift that accelerated under Donald Trump. So those same activists now are trying to register as many new voters as they can uh, before the runoff elections on January 5th. How different politically is the Georgia that we're seeing right now versus what we've seen in, in recent memory? Extremely different. And, and I think the, the sort of the best way that you can frame the difference is to look at the last time there was a, a Senate runoff in Georgia back in 2008. People all around the world have truly had their eyes on Georgia. So the, the Senate race in 2008 was very, very close, I think three percentage points, and went to a runoff uh, after Barack Obama's election in 2008. And then Republicans romped in, in that runoff. It wasn't close. It was a, it was a runaway victory. And you have delivered tonight a strong message to the world that conservative Georgia values matter. And it was sort of that um, there was a lot of enthusiasm and and, uh, a strong Democratic vote on the election day in in 2008. And then the Democratic vote dropped off and just wasn't there. 
And no one expects that this time around. Uh, I mean, we've seen over the past decade, Stacey Abrams and other Georgia Democrats and, and nonprofit organizations and a bunch of groups on the ground go through sort of the groundwork of creating an infrastructure in the state, registering hundreds of thousands of new voters, uh, activating voters and getting them to, to turn out not just for presidential elections, but for midterm elections, uh, you know, for, for runoffs uh, in the intervening time between 2008 and now. And so, I mean, I think in terms of the Democratic electorate and, and the voters, I mean, obviously there's been the suburban swing. There's been these sort of Republican strongholds that, as they have across the country, have, have swung during Donald Trump's presidency from Republicans to Democrats. Uh, you know, all of the collar counties around Atlanta and all of the, the suburban and exurban areas and, and those, uh, you know, counties that, that have swung for Democrats. But the other thing is that Democrats have just activated their voters in a way that they hadn't before. It's just the Democratic electorate in the state is is very different than it was even just four years ago. Absolutely. On the flip side, the Republican electorate is very different, too. Like the, the places that they used to draw the most strength from are now some of the strongest Democratic areas in, in the suburbs. Uh, so tell, tell me a little bit about your reporting trips in Georgia. You know, what you've been seeing, who, who you're talking to. Uh, what's what's the scene on the ground there right now? I, I mean, the scene on the ground is is enthusiasm uh, on all fronts Un- unbridled enthusiasm <laughs> unbridled enthusiasm yeah I, I was down there for sort of the first series of events that all four campaigns did in the post-election period uh, after the runoffs were, were officially announced and I mean you could see it right away uh, John Ossoff the the Democrat who's running against Senator David Perdue in the actual election not not the special election but the the regular election held a, a drive-in rally, this this sort of type of rally that Democrats have, have become accustomed to in the pandemic where cars drive in, people are spread out on the pavement or they stay in their car and they do a, you know, a big rally and there are horns blaring and, you know, you can kind of, you count enthusiasm by how many cars show up and how many car horns you can hear in the background of, of the speeches. And I mean, you leave these events with a headache because the the car horns are blaring for an hour and a half. But I mean, that is, to me, there's no better explanation of enthusiasm on the democratic side than a bunch of people going and sitting in a parking lot in light rain in in an evening in atlanta in november to hear john ossoff speak and to honk their horns every time he says something that they like truly the the level of enthusiasm you have to have for an election to go hear a senate candidate five days after you just had an election uh and and just hear him sitting in your car and blowing your horn people are lit up people are very very excited so, so there's no sense of like people being kind of over it. No, I really, I really don't think there is. In, in fact, I mean, certainly there will be drop off. There will be voters who only show up for presidential elections and don't turn out again. That's just kind of inevitable. But you don't feel any drop off in enthusiasm on the ground. And the same thing was true for the first Republican event. Uh, it was Senator Leffler had Marco Rubio in town to do an event. David Perdue wasn't there at that first one. It was at a county headquarters. You know, just sort of a drab office space in one of these uh, suburban Atlanta counties, and it was packed. Just wall-to-wall with people in there, people spilling out into the parking lot outside. They had to have an overflow parking lot for all the people that were showing up just to, you know, hear two senators go in and talk for five, ten minutes uh, about the runoff race. It, it's The enthusiasm is palpable at all of these events. The same was true when when Purdue and Leffler did their first joint appearance at a bar in ex-urban Atlanta about an hour outside of downtown. It just packed wall to wall. Uh, Dozens Mm. and dozens and dozens of people very excited. Uh, So I I think, you know, we joke, we talk about the stakes couldn't be higher, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the voters of Georgia 
genuinely feel that. And, and it is, it has gotten through to them on both sides, how important these two elections are. And, and you can feel that on the ground. There's a lot of different people who, who are uh, coming to town and getting involved. Yeah. Well, and look at the roster of the people who are coming to town on the Republican side. And you can tell, uh, you know, just how important they think helping out in this election will be for all of their futures. I mean, it's, it's Marco Rubio, it's Rick Scott, it's Tom Cotton, it's Vice President Pence, uh, Nikki Haley, the former UN ambassador, has has helped out on the fundraising side. These are all Republicans who have some some grander ambitions, potentially some 2024 ambitions. And so it, that is that is one way to really tell just how important this is for the Republican Party writ large is how much these ambitious politicians who might have you know future elections in mind see the need to be helping out and doing everything that they can for these two center bases. Yeah. And, uh, you know, another ambitious up and comer with uh, 2024 on his mind heading there on Saturday, uh, President Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> uh, little joke there, uh, who, you know, he, I think this is going to be his first like political event since the, uh, since the election, uh, which would be interesting to, to behold. Obviously he's also talking about potentially running again. Uh, and, and he's, he's going to be heading down there too. Well, and his rally is, is kind of uh, gets at uh, a sort of tension within the Republican Party that they're having to deal with, which is President Trump and some of his close allies have basically gone on the attack. They're going after the Secretary of State, who is a Republican in Georgia. The president has been tweeting consistently going after the governor, uh, someone he endorsed in 2018. Uh, he has now said that he regrets that endorsement and has uh, tweeted his frustration with the way that the election was handled that's putting Senators Leffler and Purdue in a bind uh, because they need Trump voters to be engaged. They need to be energized. And the president is saying that the election was was mishandled and you know making false claims of, of voter fraud that the secretary of state has pushed back on and said there's no evidence of, but it's creating sort of a rift in the party. And so the, the president's visit will be an interesting sort of insight into that, whether he spends most of the time talking about the stakes of the election that we've laid out and the, you know, the future of control of the Senate, or whether he spends most of the time talking about his own election and going on the attack against some Republican elected officials in the state that, you know, could further inflame the, the tensions within the party. That's not something that Republicans in Georgia want to see out of that visit. Right. I, I'm not a political strategist, but my understanding is that it's generally considered unfavorable to have large rifts separating chunks of your party heading into an important election. You know, you can make a living on a political strategist with thoughts like that. <laughs> so obviously all these people getting involved, they're kind of getting involved in this like thumping backdrop of attack ads that are probably just like seared into everyone's brains at this point. Uh, j- just how much money is flowing into Georgia right now? Unlimited. <laughs> uh, no, not not actually unlimited, but it, but it sort of does feel that way. I mean, we've at this point easily topped uh, $100 million. I, I think potentially at this point closing in on or may have already topped $200 million just in terms of the TV advertising that has already been spent or already been booked either by the campaigns or by outside groups. I mean, looking at some of the, the most recent numbers, I mean, you've got John Ossoff's campaign has spent or booked more than $40 million on TV, which is an astronomical sum for a campaign to spend for an entire election cycle, let alone for an eight-week runoff. And he's not alone. I mean, the same Raphael Warnock, more than $50 million uh, on TV. Kelly Loeffler, more than $40 million on TV. David Perdue, uh, right around $40 million on TV. The the sums of money that these campaigns are putting up on TV for advertising are astronomical. I mean, I truly, these are amounts of money that campaigns could spend over the entirety of a two-year cycle, and they're going to do it in just about two and a half months. And that doesn't even factor in the outside groups. I've had Republicans tell me that $500 million total could be spent 
uh, on these elections. I, I think it's entirely possible that it goes above that. That would put these two runoffs, and to be clear, runoffs, not including everything that was spent before November 3rd, up on the list of the most expensive Senate races of all time. So you really can't emphasize enough just how much money from both sides is, is flowing into this thing. Well, and so the you know the the picture I get from that is that these 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 two sides have uh, they clearly have more money than they could possibly spend just on on advertising, right? Uh, TV or online or, or both or whatever. I thought it was really interesting that there you know there's another voter registration deadline to be eligible for this January runoff, including you know potentially some number of people who didn't vote in November. It's probably not going to be a huge number, but when you're talking about a state that's split almost exactly 50-50, any number uh, could could be decisive. And so, so what you know, what are what are folks doing around that uh, that opportunity to to change the electorate in this short period of time? Yeah, it is. So it's twofold. It's change the electorate in any way that you can, and then it's make sure that every single voter that was there for you and on November third comes back for you. And so, in terms of the registration ahead of the deadline, the John Ossoff campaign initially said that they identified about twenty three thousand, I think. Uh, voters who were potentially eligible, who were not 18 before November 3rd, but would turn 18 before January 5th. Well, that's interesting. Who could become new registered voters. And so those are, uh, you know, young voters. It's it's uh, a block that tends to skew a little bit more Democratic. I mean, obviously, the breakdown of those voters and those who would get registered there, it's it's sort of hard to predict where they would fall. But that's a pot of voters that just wasn't eligible, didn't exist before November 3rd. And so, you know, like you said, register half of those 23,000. I don't know how possible that is, uh, how many of them are, are interested in registering to vote, certainly. But that's a way that you change the electorate and you give yourself a little bit of an advantage that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Some of the other, some of the nonprofit groups, some of the organizations started by Stacey Abrams that have made voter registration their calling card, that's all they work on, identified as many as 100,000 voters who could be eligible for the runoffs who didn't uh, register in time for the November 3rd election. Again, that's sort of the high watermark of how many they could register, but certainly any portion of that would give an advantage and would kind of add potential votes out there. And then the question becomes, how many can you get out? There's more money than can be spent on advertising. And so all of that money that isn't being put on TV is getting thrown into the ground game. And Republicans have absolutely flooded the zone. They have, I think, 21 regional field directors across the state, 1,000 employees uh, knocking doors, registering voters, dropping off mail. They have, you know, literature pieces that are uh, highlighting early vote, highlighting absentee voting. Democrats are doing the same now. They've revived knocking on doors, something that uh, for the most part they didn't do before the November 3rd election as a way to reach voters uh, and get them back out to the polls, knocking on doors and making sure that you have both the paid professionals and the volunteers necessary to do that kind of work. Hundreds of thousands of doors uh, requires resources and particularly requires resources when you're doing it in a pandemic where you have to kind of take extra precautions that you wouldn't have to take otherwise. And, and so the, the ground game is, is very expensive. It kind of gets lost because you can't track it the way that you can track the TV ad spending. But both parties are going to be pouring enormous resources into finding every new potential voter that they can register. And then through that pot of voters, every voter that they can get to send an absentee ballot in so that they can you know check that off. That's it. Once a voter sends their absentee ballot, you don't need to worry about contacting that voter again. Mm-hmm. And then early voting, which starts on December 14th and will run for a couple of weeks. Basically, both parties want to bank as many votes as possible ahead of January 5th because, you know, it's happening right after Christmas, right after New Year's. It's kind of an awkward time to get people out to the polls. So if you can bank as many votes as possible before then, 
you know, that sort of minimizes the uh, the work necessary to get your voters out on January 5th. And that's just an expensive proposition. You, you just, you need a lot of money to have the kind of field program and to get that kind of field program up and running in such a short amount of time. Absolutely. If you were a betting man, who, who would you be betting on? If I were a betting man, I would stay very far away from betting <laughs> on these two races. I know that's a cop-out answer, but that is, that is truthfully... I mean, the thing about these races is we haven't really seen a lot of public polling. I don't know if we will see a lot of public polling. Um, I think public pollsters are probably, you know, you you jump first. Don't want to be the, the first one to sort of be in the field on this, given some of the uh, criticisms that they've taken since November 3rd. Well, yeah. I mean, do, do you think it would even be possible to take an accurate temperature of these races? Frankly, Yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that I, I think almost any poll that would be taken in these two races would show races within the margin of error. Very, very close, right. very competitive. The problem with that is that uh, there's there's not this universe of persuadable voters. There's not this universe of undecided swing voters the way there generally are in these elections. The number of operatives that I've heard use this term, it's shirts and skins. It's put your jerseys on. It's, it's get your vote out. And so even if a poll showed that it was 49% to 49% with a very small undecided and very, very tight race, if one side does a much better job than the other side of getting their voters back out, then that poll doesn't matter. Because it's it's just, it is, again, I, I'm throwing cliches at you left and right on this, but it is true. Turnout is everything in this race. It's which side does a better job of getting their voters back out. And they know exactly who their voters are because they just voted. They were just yeah. out. And so it's just a matter now of convincing them to come back and do it again. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like, I, you know, I think, I mean, we just had a, a very large poll in the election, right? <laughs> uh, the largest possible one. And the thing that, that polls have the most difficulty with is gauging turnout. And, and given the the situation we're in, you know, not entirely sure how much extra information we can glean from, from this right now. Well, and that's why Republicans, I, I think, would feel generally like they have maybe a slight edge. Um, David Perdue did win about 85,000 votes more than John Ossoff, even as even as Joe Biden won the election. Mm-hmm. And Raphael Warnock sort of underperformed expectations. There's a lot of reasons why that happened, not least of which is because uh, his name appeared lower down on a ballot of 20 people. Um, yeah, I saw, I mean, I saw some of the ballots in, in DeKalb County, I think, and that they were enormous. Yeah, enormous. Tw- 20 people on the ballot uh, split between Republicans, Democrats, and third-party candidates. And so, uh, you know, a lot of choice. That's why that race was always guaranteed to go to a runoff. But so it's it's sort of hard to gauge where he would have uh, fit otherwise. But but Purdue running so far ahead of Ossoff and, and, and outrunning President Trump gives Republicans a little bit of an advantage. But then it comes back to the same question we had earlier, which is, do those voters who showed up for President Trump, who maybe aren't traditional Republican voters, you know, maybe that's maybe 2016 and 2020 are the only time that they cast ballots. Um, they don't they don't show up for midterms. They don't show up for runoffs. Can Republicans get those voters back out? Uh, because Democrats have struggled historically in runoffs to get their voters back out. It's been a problem. That's why they've been so unsuccessful in runoffs. I don't think they're going to have that problem to the same degree this time around. Uh, they've just they've sort of changed the infrastructure of the party and the state, and their voters understand what's possible in terms of flipping the Senate there. So I don't I don't think Democrats are going to struggle the way they have in the past to get their voters out. And so the question is, are Republicans or are they going to have a fine time? You know, is President Trump going to go to mm-hmm. a rally, energize his voters, and they all show up? And then it's a question of, you know, just a little bit on the margins, one way or the other, flips it. And certainly also since the last Senate runoff, the, the Democratic coalition has changed in a way that probably makes it a little bit higher, higher vote propensity. I don't know. It's, you know, every time I kind of start talking myself into one side or the other having an advantage, like, a, you know, a reason pops up why, uh, why things, you know, something looking positive for the other party. 
I think it really just is is as simple as like the this was like the closest state of <laughs> of this year's election and it'll probably be really close again. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see a blowout in either race in either direction. Uh, I think these are means actually we we could potentially be waiting a few days to figure out what happened. Yep, I think that's entirely possible. Which would be a fitting end to the 2020 election cycle. Never end. Yeah. What else did you see that struck you while you were on the ground? You know, the the rallies you went to, the 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 sound there. You've talked a little bit about how it's just completely different than than anything you've covered in the past. But the, what 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 else really struck you? Yeah, I, I mean, it is. It's covering a, a race in a pandemic. Uh, obviously, is is very different than than generally covering these races. I mean, you know, uh, at the Republican events, you're struck because they they were indoors, um, which you know is is sort of uh, questionable, and so kind of a a fraught environment. Um, and then on the democratic side, it's, it's very spaced out. It's all outdoors. It's, um, uh, you know, driving rallies, a lot of cars. Um, the other thing that that's really struck me so far is that these, these really are, they're running as both sides are running as tickets. Um, Warnock and Ossoff are campaigning together. Uh, they are leaning into the idea that, uh, you know, one wins, the other's going to win too. There's not expected to be a split between these two races. And the same on the other side, um, Purdue and Leffler did not do any campaigning together during the general election because she was running against a, another Republican in that, in that jungle primary, but they've, uh, done a bunch of campaign events together. They, they're issuing statements, joint statements. Um, you know, they're, they're running as tickets and, and I mean, for Democrats, it's necessary. You know, one is not good enough. They need both of those races to have a 50, 50 Senate for Republicans. It's not necessary, uh, you know, win one race and, and you control the Senate, but I, I think it's just an indication both that they that they have to do it. You know, these races are, are going to be run together and that they sort of you know, the in, in both cases, they identify with different parts of the electorate. They energize different parts of the electorate. And so running as a as a duo as opposed to running separate campaigns allows them in terms of the resources, in terms of the voter outreach to, to just kind of do everything in tandem, uh, which is enormously beneficial for both. James, this is great. Thanks so much for talking to us about it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Amund. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps more people find the show. And check out some of our other podcasts. There's Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. And we have a brand new podcast series from Politico, Global Translations. We'll talk to you again next week. James and I have been joking basically for a year now about um, all of the, like... (laughs) best slash worst Georgia headlines we could think of. Like, I think that the very first one we came up with was Democrats book two tickets on the midnight train to the majority. He's an-